being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong today i am joined by the chums of chance two friends of the show twitter personalities and my pension buddies specifically i'm talking about cj aka dr pig bodine aka pussy teeth of the mind games podcast also a recurring guest Uh, generally for Helen Moore-related episodes. (laughs) (laughs) And we're also joined by Boyd Beaver, who some of you might remember appeared with me to discuss Alexander Guterma. Boyd Beaver is truly an expert on this bizarre 20th century con man, but also a perpetual wandering researcher, just like CJ and I. So I was thinking this chums of chance thing might be something we might do in the future if listeners like, because there's really never an end to Thomas Pynchon. Today, we're here to talk about The Crying of Lot 49, Thomas Pynchon's second novel, which I consider one of the best starting points for getting into Pynchon. Now, for those of you who have not read the novel, you do not need to turn off this episode. I do urge you to read the novel. It's short, it's a quick read, It gives you a great taste for pension. It holds up to multiple rereadings. And I legitimately don't think that its themes have been fully plumbed or exhausted yet. I do want to say before we get into it that I don't think you need to have read the novel to enjoy this episode. And you don't exactly need to worry about spoilers because for one thing, we're not going to just go through the plot entirely in this episode. Even if we were, it might not make sense if we were to explain it uh, with some of the twists and turns in the plot. But rather than doing a boil down of the plot, uh, CJ Boyd and I, we all picked different aspects or certain themes from the novel. And we each, you know, sort of prepared, you know, our thoughts on that. So we're going to go through and discuss them. And I'm very excited because I know what these boys are going to talk about, but I don't know what they found. So I'm very excited to get into this. Uh, CJ and Boyd, how are you guys doing? Uh, hola. Mi nombre es CJ. Uh, Puedes llamarme dientes de vagina. Uh, estoy contento de estar aquí. Uh, hace poco comencé a leer Bolaño y he decidido convertirme en un weeb para Latinoamérica. Uh, por favor, tengan paciencia conmigo durante este tiempo de transición. Damn, I'm feeling roasted as hell. <laughs> That's why I had to research how to say vagina or pussy in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> we can uh, cut that if you guys don't like no, it. But that was, I'm feeling that was personally right. attacked. <laughs> yeah did i say everything right i was worried i didn't uh, listen to any pronunciation so and i speak zero spanish it was grammatically correct as far as i could tell <laughs> i'll take that as i praised <laughs> boyd how are you doing today i'm doing pretty good man uh <laughs> really excited and uh especially after that <laughs> you're officially a bilingual podcast now <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah 
sorry. <laughs> I was so excited to do that. I told Pastiche oh, that I told Pastiche about it and she thought it was great. So I was like, all right, cool. Yeah. That's so funny. That's yeah, that's a good seal of approval right there. Yeah. C- CJ, what like what is behind you? Is that like a to me it looks like a Gundam, the thing on the wall? Up here? Yeah, it's like below the red thing. What is that thing? A plant, isn't it? Below the red. Th- okay, so the orange thing on the wall is yeah. an elephant head. Okay. Not a real. It's made of like plaster. I see. For like, yeah. And then below it is a dog harness and a leash. Oh, okay. Um, but it does. I and Yeah, it does definitely look like something that could be activated. <laughs> I was like, damn, you got your Gundam models up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, we do have a lot of uh, robot toys laying around here. Um, so yeah. I do worry sometimes that they're going to come to me in the night, but <laughs> so far, so good. At least it's not like that creepy doll that I have on my bookshelf. I think, I think CJ, you've seen it. Yeah, that thing's, <laughs> it's the worst. I don't know why we still have it in the house. Like, oh, it's a family heirloom. Like, no, burn it, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's all the more reason to burn it. Like. <laughs> Fuck, who knows what it's seen or been a part of? I don't want to know. Mm-mm. So, okay. So, at what age did you guys read this novel for the first time? I want to pull the room. A little bit of biography. I read this for the first time when I was 19. And I was my freshman year of college. And I read, I, re- I read like all of it. Well, I read like half in one day. And then I got to the... Um, the Jacobian uh, revenge play bit and I like kind of lost steam and then a week later I picked it up and finished it in another day Um, and it like totally blew my mind it was like I mean that whole year kind of put me on the path to where I am now but like reading that book in particular it was like oh shit (laughs) oh yeah yeah what about you Boyd Uh, I probably read it I was either 21 or 22 um, and I read it because I had seen cuddle talking about it, uh, crypto cuttlefish. And uh, I like, I found a copy on the internet, like the day that I saw him talking about it and it was in the morning and I spent the whole after like morning and afternoon um, just like eyes bleeding, staring at my computer, (laughs) reading this book and like taking breaks to go smoke a blunt and then just coming back and like losing my goddamn mind. Like I can't imagine like reading this high. (laughs) Oh dude, it was a nightmare. Like it's, it's, it was awful. I, it was pretty much over for me after that. Oh man. See for me, I was 18. I was freshman year of college I'm not trying to get too autobiographical here, but I think the listeners will enjoy it. I was at Brigham Young University, so was not oh, high. Let's fucking go! Was not high when I read it, but um, I definitely loved it. Um, it took me so long to appreciate the pension songs. Like, oh, they're amazing. <laughs> they're so you're kidding bad me. When you like, when you're not like a wasp or something, and like you're not particularly musical. Like, I'm just like, what is he going on about? This is like, <laughs> what is this like Tolkien? Like, <laughs> that was a huge selling point for me. It was like the stupid songs. I was like, this is this. I didn't know this was allowed. Like. You could just do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the uh the one where they're doing the the yo-yo dine song that <laughs> dude when i reread it this time that killed me man that was the best yeah. The, oh, they yeah. name drop like every defense contractor in yeah. America. <laughs> it's great. And isn't it to like the Cornell fight song or something? I think it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. It says in there, it gives like a little bit of stage direction on how it's supposed to be performed. Yeah. The best though is in Inherent Vice when he like describes the shitty surf guitar parts and stuff in the middle of the songs that mm-hmm. me every single time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) A master at the craft. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you guys, because for me, do you think that you understood what happened in the novel and what was going on? Because I definitely did not. Like, I knew in in terms of the narrative what happened, right? Like, I don't have, like, reading comprehension issues, but, like, I, like, absorbed the vibes, but I don't think that I, like, got it quote unquote what about you guys i would say it didn't sink in for me like right off the bat like i'm not ashamed to admit it like the first time i read mm-hmm. it it was I, I would say it was some, something like comparable to what uh, you're describing where it was like okay i get like what he's what he's kind of going for here but like every time i reread it there's like other stuff that i pick up on them like holy shit how did he like how did he layer this in there like that like there's just it like you said it just it doesn't end like it's a uh or nobody's really fully explored it yet i don't think yeah yeah that's what i want to like probably come back to several times is like i still don't think that it's like fully exhausted yet um mm-hmm. what about you cj um yeah i mean so I, and like this is what my bit's gonna be but like mm-hmm. so i was an english major and i r.i.p <laughs> yeah right i wasn't much better so i'm not <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I was, I was a a shitty English major and, uh, and then I went to grad school briefly for English. Um, and so I thought that I understood it. I like, I, cause I was like, I would sit in the library. There was like a pinch in bookshelf. Cause like there Mm -hmm. were enough books in there, uh, like about his work that I just sat in this corner in this one chair that I moved and like, it's like cool actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, (laughs) I I was like, I, was there in a lot of different states of inebriation and like it was like a second home for me for my time at uh at college but so I, I read all these like secondary sources people analyzing it and I thought that I had a handle on it and then it wasn't until I got a little more paranoid and like outside of the academy that I uh realized I didn't I didn't get it I was uh I was led astray which is what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. No, no competition, obviously. But how many times have each of you read this? Just twice for me. This is the second time I've read it. Yeah. Twice. Right on. What about you, Boyd? I think this was number five. Nice. Um, nice. But, you know, the give or take. Every once in a while, just like there's, there's really two or three books, I guess really four that I like that I will habitually reread. And this is one of them. What are the other ones? Now, yeah. Now you got to tell us. Uh, I'm like somewhat ashamed to admit it, but I, I love breakfast of champions. Like what are you want to get? Wait, 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 hang might, on. Why no, are you ashamed? What no, the fuck? Well, you know, he might, he might be a little bit sus. He might be a little bit sus. And he's I have a, I've, two I've breakfast heard. of champion tattoos. Okay. You're in good company. 
look, I'm not, I'm saying I like it. I'm saying I like it. I, I yeah, like yeah. it very much, but I, I, I will admit that like, he's, you know, I, I've heard that personally he was an asshole and that, uh, you know, there's that sus, uh, Iowa writers workshop connection where it's like, okay, yeah. well, you know, there, there might be something a little bit, a little bit funny about the guy, but I, I, I love breakfast of champions. It's one of my favorite books. Um, right on. and so I, I do that one. And then I've like, I've gone at gravity's rainbow, um, like I, I don't finish it every time, but I'll just sit there and like read different sections of it. And then against the yeah. day. Yeah. Nice. See, I've only done gravity's rainbow and against the day once each. Uh, so I, I envy you there. I've probably read this, the crying of lot 49. I want to say it's either three or four times. I, I think four times um, the most I read, I reread it for this, but then I, most recently had reread it during COVID, but nice. I think before I started the show, it, when I was just sort of like absorbing vibes of like <laughs> crazy things. And like, I got to say, like reading it during COVID, like in especially the early days of COVID, like such a weird, like everything was so liminal at that point. And I was just like, super burnt out and i was just like just like baking my brain with the crying of Walt 49 <laughs> specifically i really like about pension it like I, th- I mean all of his books but especially this one and gravity's rainbow have like really salient passages that you can just go back and like, like i was thinking about with Boyd. like i do the same thing with gravity's rainbow and just pick up and reread like paragraphs or like a couple of, you know they're like the scene with the dodos like or byron the bulb like i've read both of those scenes like probably yeah 15 times um, yeah because it's like this like perfectly self-contained like in terms of like craft and like what he's trying to communicate and it's oh man yeah oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. he's the best Take the dog 
So should we get into some of what uh, you have found and prepared for us today, CJ? Sure. Oh, actually, sorry, my bad. Um, okay. I did want to say, do we want to do at least the briefest of plot summaries? Not concerned with like going through everything, but just like, what is the premise of this for people who are like completely new? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Who wants to do it? Because I'm like, trying to figure out yeah okay yeah you go first <laughs> yeah <laughs> you want me to take a stab at it i i i don't mind i'll try all right so edipa moss is a 30 something uh woman living in san narciso and she doesn't live there she lives up north but she lives in california and her ex-husband pierce in dies and he names her the not executor, but executrix of his estate. And so she begins to execute the estate. And as she's doing so, she starts to possibly unravel a centuries old conspiracy involving uh, like a a cold war between um, postal services so there's Thurnan Taxis is the uh, the state-sanctioned postal service, and Tristero is the um, I think they're called anarchists, but they're like they're the revolutionary like you know not state-sanctioned, more like Sub Rosa um, postal service. And so the book is basically her having a series like going through a series of scenarios in which she's possibly uncovering clues about this conspiracy, but it's never really made clear to her or to the reader, the degree to which she's hallucinating these things, or if this was all like prepared as a prank within the estate, or if it's a real, you know, honest to God nightmare that she's finding where there's this, you know, like I said, centuries-long cold war that nobody knows about um all that i would add is just that because i think it's important but tristero has allegedly been used for a really long time as like a um a way for people who have been for in some way exiled or excommunicated from society to communicate um you know people who are outcasts or or don't have um faith in or the ability to communicate through like uh above board channels yeah well said uh i think that is that was really good thanks because the plot uh scene by scene would be very difficult uh to explain but like overall perfect like that is pretty much what happens and it's a confounding novel because there isn't (laughs) a there isn't a clear final like sent there isn't a clear finality to it if you mm-hmm. like there i would argue there's an emotional climax but not a plot you know wrapping everything up 
you know, this was the mystery, it's, you know, solved type of thing. Right. In fact, I mean, like the, I mean, I guess this is a spoiler, but the last line of the novel is she's waiting at an auction to potentially purchase the, like a, a, a collection of stamps that would at, at the very least help to give her some certainty as to like, is this real or imagined? And the last line of the novel is she awaited the crying of lot 49 and that the, so the crying being the auctioneer crying the lot, which is the collection of stamps numbered 49. So it explicitly like, it just like leaves you hanging. There's no, yeah. If you're looking for the, like to find out what happened, it's not going to give it to you. Oh yeah. And can I just say, I know it might be cheesy maybe to modern ears but like when they say the line of the book at the very end of the novel i was just like yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah that i thought that's so cool it's like those memes where it's like i'm the taxi driver or whatever (laughs) (laughs) well and the thing i it's just it's such like an evocative title Mm -hmm. and like the whole book you're just like what the fuck is this about (laughs) like why what and then it's it's almost like a last joke where it's like yeah. you know like he's just like oh yeah here's the title it doesn't really have anything to do with the book in a sense like yeah but it also has everything to do with it you know let me ask you guys before we get <clears throat> all the way into cj's thing like how often was this in this most recent rereading how often were you laughing uh i would stay on average uh, every two pages maybe every three yeah, I felt like I was constantly laughing. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple there's a couple of scenes that I think are like very much not funny and like mm-hmm. are very affecting. Mm-hmm. Um which lowered my <laughs> I would say every page, but yeah, there's like a couple passages where it's just like really powerful. Um but yeah, no, it's it's a hilarious book. Yeah, no, it's got like um all types of jokes too it's got slapstick to like very complicated puns to like very obvious puns just like situational humor just you know everything so that's the thing sometimes with like a lot of this like highbrow literature it's not very joyful but like this I just feel like I'm always laughing with pension even well like you said, maybe every two pages, which is... That's a pretty good average. Pretty good. But, like, other times... But other times you might, like, be like, oh, man, that's fucked up, like... (laughs) Or, like, something that's, like, moving you emotionally as well. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that sets Pynchon apart from, like, a lot of his contemporaries is, like... Because, like, DeLillo's really funny, Mm -hmm. right? But I don't think that, like, DeLillo lets he never like sacrifices his attempt at being like a serious author mm-hmm. to like, to get a joke. Right. Whereas I think Pynchon will just go for the joke, like regardless yeah. of how it looks, you know, like it, it just doesn't matter to him. I mean, one of the radio stations is named uh, KCUF, which is just fuck backwards. And like, it's so it's very dumb. doesn't mean anything, but like, oh, yeah, I didn't even yeah. realize that. So like, it yeah. feels like a Marx Brothers <laughs> film where it's just like constant jokes and you like might miss half of them, honestly. 
Oh yeah, it's like Thirty Rock. No, he's like he's almost daring you to like not take it seriously. Yeah. Like it, it's almost like an intentional provocation where it's like you know he he has this really serious work that is you know uh, it's a big deal, um, and he's very skilled at what he does, and then also has the humor of like a twelve year old boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's amazing. That's why he's the greatest the greatest American author. Oh yeah, indeed. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So let's see, CJ, how would you explain the general thrust of what you got, what you got into? Well, I come to you, friends and dear listeners, as a sin eater. <laughs> I've, I've been to hell and I come back to bear my, uh, bear my testimony. Um, and by hell, I mean, I read so fucking much academic scholarship about this book and i'm gonna talk about it so you don't have to read it oh yeah so um yeah uh basically what i did is i just went through jstor and i uh i read parts of articles i read a couple whole articles um and uh i want to just kind of summarize where how scholars read the book and how I think it's maybe intention, maybe unintentionally, but probably not uh, like doing a disservice to Pynchon as like an author and a thinker. Um, but first I have um, two, just that this, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I'm so excited. I love this shit. Um in my research, I found, uh, started a list. There's only two things on it, but it's called the list of dog shit names. And uh, these are real articles published by real academics who get paid more than any of us to <laughs> think all day. Wait, wait, wait. So are these people that we need to send to go work in the countryside? You're zero. Absolutely. All, <laughs> all but one of the people that I'm going to talk about need some serious re-education they're they're like they're too far gone they may not i mean i don't know if re-education will work honestly um, their brain is just pudding um, and i say brain because they all share one stupid brain um so this is a real article that was published uh it's called the charge of a light barricade optics and ballistics in the ambiguous being of screens and this is about the crying of lot 49 uh it it referenced the crying of lot 49 in passing Hmm. i think that it was i didn't read much of it i think that it was about uh the depiction of ballistics on the ambiguous being of screens which i think you could just call like a tv Hmm. like it doesn't have to be um but that just made me laugh out loud and get pissed and then there's also (laughs) This, I can't believe this is real. Historioplastic metafiction. Tarantino, Nolan, and the return to Hegel. Oh, come on. Get fucked. <laughs> yeah, right? That just sounds like a shit post. Someone I, yeah, that's, that's something I would make up as a joke. Like, God. Hells, yeah. Fuck. I was, yeah, I was going to find more, but I was getting too heated. And I didn't want to, like, <laughs> have a stroke before we could record this. Um, but anyways, so 
to kind of briefly summarize, so The Crying of Lot 49 came out in 1966. Wait, 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 sorry. Why did all your papers say Bernie Sanders then? <laughs> oh, this, so, oh yeah, this. So yeah. I didn't have any paper that I could use very easily. Um, and this was when I was running canvases for Bernie back in 2020. This is the script. I just wrote on the back of it. I found it in a drawer. <laughs> Because I thought it was going to be related somehow. <laughs> right. I was waiting for this setup. Like, oh, no. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. Uh uh-uh. uh. No. If you, That's I can hilarious. talk about how to canvas if you want. I'm a pretty good canvasser. Brother, but... between you and me, we could probably canvas the hell out of some places. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. We would <laughs> fuck it up, man. Can you imagine these two showing up at your door? <laughs> <laughs> we'll just start selling alarms. <laughs> <laughs> it would. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, yo, if you come down to Florida, we could sell solar panels. Mm. Those motherfuckers make so much money. Um, it would be like <laughs> brothers, though. You would be Arnold Schwarzenegger and I'd be Danny DeVito. <laughs> going door to door. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah, unfortunately, not a lot of Bernie Sanders talk today. Uh, so just to kind of set the stage for like, the literary scene into which the crying of lot 49 was born. Um, It came out in 1966 and, you know, you have post-World War II in America, you have the, the beat generation in the like late fifties, early sixties kind of ushering in uh, a heyday of what people call postmodern literature. Um, It, um, among that designation, you would find people like Kurt Vonnegut, Thomas Pynchon, uh, Don DeLillo comes a little bit later. There's Donald, Donald Barthelm. Um, uh, but, 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 who's that one guy who wrote like Giles Goat Boy, um, John Barth, mm. and then other people. And this is a movement that's also like reflected across like genres of literature, like this postmodern poetry. I don't know shit about it. I've read some, it sucks. Um, and then you have like, you know, uh, postmodern filmmaking, experimental films. Like if you listen to Subliminal Jihad, people will talk about like uh, Kenneth Anger. You know, he was working around the same time. And all these people are kind of... Like Jodorowsky. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and all these people are kind of like, I would say, trying to reckon with the emergent like late capitalist culture that you're seeing and the the counterculture of the 60s right like it's it's all a lot of this stuff is like pretty radical in terms of its aesthetics um and it's it's i mean i I don't want to get too deep into the weeds but like if you know anything about like postmodern art this is when it's happening right so and pension is hailed as like a maybe the prime example of like postmodern literature right it's always interesting right like not to like endlessly play the like genre game or whatever but like i think you could almost argue that he's like one of the last like high modernist for sure you know high modernists like or at least in that period where it's transitioning or something like yeah i mean i think i understand like by the by the definition of postmodernism that people use i see why they lump pension into it but like I think Pynchon has like as much or more in common with like Joseph Conrad and William Faulkner. Like Nabokov. Yeah. Nabokov for sure. Um, Then he does with like uh, DeLillo. Right. I think, 
Mm -hmm. that would be my probably my take I don't know I'd have to think about it but he's definitely like I don't think that he I don't think it's fair to lump him in with the postmodernists because primarily a lot of the postmodern rebellion to my mind was one of aesthetics right so they the postmodernists to the extent that you can I think like abandoned politics and kind of turned towards um more like philosophical heady navel gazing navel gazing right well because like what well, isn't that the thing they always say about postmodernism is that like oh it's a response to the collapse of grand narratives blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. yeah and like yeah. i don't necessarily buy that that's what pension is doing exactly i very much think that that's not what he's doing but I think that people see him as being playful and they see him as being, uh, you know, kind of collapsing the distinction between high art and low art. Um, And in doing so, people just lump him in, like I said, in my opinion, unfairly with postmodernists. But I think that Pynchon's project is explicitly political. And I don't think you could say the same for like, you know, John Barth or Donald Barthelm. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut's a little different, but even Vonnegut is more, I think, like philosophical that's gesturing towards politics than it is like, you know, sitting down and wrestling with like history and political shit. So let me ask you this, both of you, because I've always had the perception that at least in academia, when people read Pynchon, they are actually deeply misunderstanding him. That's my contention. And I just want to know if that's what you found what you, or what do you think of that? What do you make of that? I completely agree. That's, yeah. I've got a couple articles to, uh, to summarize um, that I think are going to kind of explicate the ways in which academics like as a whole, just misunderstand again, I think they would maybe say it's unwillful, but I, I don't believe it. Yeah. Um, Boyd, do you get that perception as well? I do. And I, I'm excited to hear what CJ has to say about it. Cause he's going to, you know, I have a feeling he's going to, you know, burn the building down on this one, but I, that is kind of the vibe that I get from the limited amount of research that I've done into like, uh, you know, what these people are saying about the books. And it's especially like from a literary criticism angle, um, they're, they're really focused on, like the book itself, I, I feel like. Um, and like that, that's where Pynchon is like where he shines the most in my opinion is like the things that he's referencing and like as a, like his book as a research tool and being able to, you know, dive into it uh, to, you know, to learn about what he's talking about and why he's talking about it. And I feel like these people often kind of miss that. Like, it's funny because like I, when I got into this stuff, when I was a, a young man, like, you know, kind of like it sounded not all that different for both of you. Like, I was at a stage in my life where I was reading a bunch of like high modernists, early postmodern authors, and I was primarily interested in the literature, in the aesthetics, in the like novelistic games being played, and only through in like prolonged exposure to pension did I start to become. I mean, I, you know, everyone's a little bit interested in like all of the things Pynchon references, but like it was only through prolonged exposure did I become even more interested in them. And I feel like sometimes some people who read Pynchon just don't make that leap. 
And I'm just like, so you're really just interested in like a really complicated puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, there's more to it than that. So maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I think that the, I think that academics like basically try to solve the wrong puzzle. Right. Yeah. 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 There it is. Pynchon is setting up puzzles for people, but the academics are like just, you know, sniffing their own farts basically (laughs) for, you know, years. That's all they do. Um, I'll start with a, uh, an article that I saw cited a lot. It's pretty old. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but I have a more recent one that kind of continues the trend that this first one does, but this one's called the novel as subversive experience. And it's by, um, uh, Kaledny and Peters. I didn't get their first names. Like sounds, sounds like a good premise at the start. Yeah. And that's kind of how the article goes. Is it like, I was like nodding my head a lot. And then I started to kind of like shake it. And then (laughs) the last thing I wrote about the article is fuck you underlined. (laughs) So that's, that's how my reading experience went, but it was published in 73. So seven years after um, the crying of lot 49 came out. And um, it basically starts by arguing that the novel teaches the reader how to read it. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And like when I was reading it this time, I picked up on that for sure. I think I even posted about it. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of like revels in things like ambiguity, uncertainty, intuition, like Mm -hmm. these are its primary concerns and like um, interpretive frameworks. It's like a fish swimming in water with like ambiguity and like paranoia, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the Kaledny and Peters uh, explain that Oedipa, Oedipa Moss, like I said, is the main character, um, that she discovers an underground of the alienated and withdrawn who use waste to communicate. And listener, waste is the, uh, the name of the Tristero's postal service in America in like 1960, whatever, when the book comes out or when the book takes place. I mean, it's an acronym lady. (laughs) We await silent Tristero's empire. (laughs) Um, But so they're kind of talking about that, which I, I think is at least like a fair reading of the text. That's pretty surface level stuff. You know, you're not going to read the book and miss that, but then they, go on to assert that Oedipa, quote, commits an act of metaphor. <laughs> I'm always committing acts of metaphor. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they, they, they move away from this, like, analysis of how the novel is teaching you to read. But instead of taking the angle that it's teaching you how to, like, read conspiracy or it's teaching you how to read history... They move towards how to read like philosophical ambiguity and kind of pivot to this like lame, like moral relativism where it's like, you know, we live in postmodern times, man. And, you know, Pynchon is about like accepting that and, you know, how it's not either or it's both and right. Like that kind of shit, like this very like kind of hippy dippy post-structuralist just like aggressive jerking off motion. Yeah, exactly. They were listening to way too much Buffalo Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. 
something happened in here <laughs> exactly um but and my issue with this article was that and i guess like to summarize was that for for these authors the ability to read ambiguity doesn't extend past the text itself right it's they don't even extend it to history or to the things that the text references. It's just, this is a book and it's ambiguous and reading it is good because you're reading ambiguity. Like, like it's just this kind of circular thing that ignores all of the shit that Pynchon is gesturing at. That's real. And instead just is like reading is good. And if it's hard, maybe it's better. (laughs) Reading rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, there's this line that the thing that I said fuck you to was uh, they write, Pynchon has dared restore the magic to language and in so doing, revive the legacy of America. Oh my gosh. Oh. I'm like, and it's like, what does that even mean? Good Lord. Like, like I'm sorry, but... It, Pynchon would probably like be so pissed off at that line. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, if you read this book, and you think that it's about restoring anything, you are dumb as fuck. Like, just a total fucking rube. Yeah, like, it, it, because, like, that's, and like that, that to me, like, this article it gets cited a lot. Like, it's like, if you're gonna write about the crying of Lot 49, from what I can tell, I'm not, I'm, to be clear, I'm not a scholar. This is just like me dicking around in my free time. We are all, every one of us, scholars. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Um, But like their takeaway is that this is a book about language, right? This is Mm -hmm. a book about like communication, which it is on some Mm -hmm. level, right? Because the, you know, postal services are the means by which people are communicating, but they're completely missing any political edge to that communication, like what it might mean to communicate in certain ways for people with political projects, That's unimportant to these scholars. It is entirely just about how words are magic. Like they literally say it, restore the magic to language. Like that's their big, their big takeaway. I was wondering how like you could get from like nodding your head to like, fuck you, but like actually, yeah, hundred (laughs) percent. Right. I like, I really was, I was excited when I started and then it just like fucking nosedived like, you know, in, in fact, it was a lot like the missile that spiraled down and then hit the Pentagon on 9-11. Um, <laughs> that was its trajectory. Um, and then I just have one other shitty article that I can briefly summarize. And then I'll talk about the good one that I found as mm-hmm. like a uh, how we should be reading Pynchon, which mm-hmm. was what I from what I gather you guys are going to do. So um this other one was called uh, The Suffusion of the Televisual in The Crying of Lot 49, written by Jacob Watson and published in 2017. So we'll see, you know, we got an article seven years after the book was published. This is going to be uh, 51 years after the publication of the novel, right? It's thesis. And these first three words are capitalized in the article and are verbatim from the article. So brace yourself. New white guys. Oh. Referring to Pynchon, DeLillo, Barth, that crew, Wallace, or DFW, I mean, like 
they call them the new white guys in all caps, are actually mainstream, but paint themselves as marginalized in order to be martyrs and maintain status and fame. And this is in the context of these authors uh, interrogating the placement of uh, like televisual media in, you know, post-World War II American society. See, like here I was worried that like, you were calling out someone who is alive who could conceivably hear this episode and was like, oh, I would feel bad if his feelings got hurt. Now I'm just like, no, fuck this guy. Yeah, Jacob Watson, it's on site, dude. <laughs> like, for real, you can fuck yourself. Um, come down to Florida, man, for real. So, and like, so like I was saying, this is in the context, like, Mr. Watson is attempting to say that these these the new white guys again, his words, not mine, are very privileged, but that in order to have the radical edge that they so desire, they have to like situate themselves as in this adverse relationship with televisual media and that they are basically coming at TV, movies, photography as being uh, in the internet, right? In later works as being malignant forces in post-world war ii society right never mind the fact that they are actually right yeah right and that's 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 where we're going right and then also in you know he 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 wants it to be he wants to set up this situation where he is accusing the author these authors of being of wanting to be marginalized but actually being mainstream right so he's saying pension is not Pinch and DeLillo, they're not really, you know, marginalized at all. They're, they are mainstream. They're, they're the new white guys. Everybody knows them. But then to that, I would say, how many people have read The Crying of Lot 49 versus how many people watch This Is Us every week, right? Mm. Like, I think that, like, you can poke this, this entire article goes up in flames when you just ask for numbers of, like, again, how many people have read a book in the last year versus how many people can tell you what happened on the bachelorette? Like, and I'm not like, I mean, I think TV's bad, but like, I, it, it's, it's a completely nonsensical argument. They like the novel has been marginalized as an art form. That's not, I don't think that's up for debate. Yeah. Right. And I don't think these authors are wrong to at least want to look at like what that might mean. You know, I mean, DeLillo, I really like his book now too. And that whole book is just about like, yeah, our authors don't mean shit anymore. Now it's like, if you want to change the world, you have to be a terrorist. <laughs> so anyways, he 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 just kind of ra- like rails against Pynchon for being kind of a hypocrite because he says, well, you say television and movies are bad, but you also use like filmic tropes in your books. So you're a hypocrite. Mr. Pynchon, you're a hypocrite and you're canceled because you're a new white guy. What's that? You got a you got an iPhone? Oh, it seems like you're criticizing <laughs> society a little exactly. bit. Exactly. It's that exact bullshit. And it's so frustrating. And this was published five years ago. This is not like old criticism. This is this is the current state of the crying of lot 49 scholarship is basically doing you're either okay so there's three things that you find there's people doing id poll mm-hmm. there's people outside of the realm of literature using the crying of lot 49 to 
basically make a point about their own field, right? Like I found this one article that was a, he's a philosopher of mind, I think. (laughs) That sounds like a Joe Rogan thing. I'm a mind philosopher. (laughs) Yeah, it does. If anybody ever told me that, I would tie a belt to a doorknob. (laughs) But, uh, no, so he, his whole, his whole argument, and again, I could not make this up if I tried, is that the crying of Law 49 prefigures a debate that Michel Foucault and some philosophy of philosopher of morals, uh, Habermas, are you guys familiar with him? By name. Okay. So I guess Foucault and Habermas had like some debate in the 70s or 80s. And he was like, ah, well, Pynchon was writing about these same issues 10, 15, 20 years before. That's the article. Was the debate about pedophilia? <laughs> Probably. Um, no, it was, it was about, it was about like uh, something to do with morals and like the relationship of the, the self to the other, like it just dumb circle jerk shit, fucking philosophical shit. Yeah. But again, his whole article is like, well, there's a book that talks about the same thing that was written before that. It's like, and like, I, you could probably read Shakespeare and find some shit that's talking like you could probably look to like Greek tragedies and find someone talking about the same thing. Like Exactly. It's, it's, it's like, again, you're completely, you're just using the novel as a cudgel to make a point that you already wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then the last thing that people like to do with it is, and I, I don't have one of these articles summarized because like I'm very dumb and I don't know what informational entropy is. But a lot of people really love to write articles about informational entropy in the crying of Lot 49, because I guess Maxwell's demon was used by some informational theorists, like systems theorists or some shit. And all of these are my my big takeaway from the articles. Again, I'm dumb. Maybe I misunderstood it. But like basically Pynchon is somehow getting at the point that if you have a lot of possible interpretations, uh, of a given phrase or like text, then communication becomes harder, but the interpretive possibility is higher. And then if there's only one interpretation, communication is clear, but there's less room for interpretation, which I, I don't know why that's important, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of the state of academics talking about pension to kind of, uh, let me see, hang on. As you're looking, CJ, I was going to say my understanding, too, from talking to a few people, some of whom did go through grad school and some didn't, like, I've heard that Pynchon in general is not exactly like the darling of a lot of literature programs anyway. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, he's which is interesting because he's really, you know, I, like people regularly call gravity's rainbow the best book of the 20th century like if you look at lists of the great american novels like it frequently is on there and often at the top but in my experience again this is just one english department but i, I mean i became obsessed with pynchon after reading the crying of lot 49 and um i could not find one of my professors in undergrad or grad school who had more than like a passing familiarity with him. Like, Oh yeah, I had to read one or two of his books when I was getting my PhD, but that was it. Yeah. 
Um, which I think, I, I think is probably because his books are, I think if you interpret them correctly are a challenge to what academics do all day, uh, which is jerk off. I mean, pension certainly is not against jerking off, but you know, I think you'd say there's a line and they cross it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I guess before I go to my like my takeaway points that I wrote down, I'll talk about the good article that I found, um, which is called Pynchon, JFK, and the CIA, Magic Eye Views of the Crying of Lot 49. It's by Hollander. It was published in 1997. Um, he is an independent scholar. So if you look him up, he's not affiliated with the university, which I think makes a lot of sense when you like You'll that'll make sense after I summarize the article. You'll see why he's not employed. Was gonna say, yeah, yeah. But basically, well, I will say too, his so this the other articles that I found were on JSTOR, so they may be hard to find PDFs of, although I'm really bad at finding that shit. This is on Pension Notes, which was a publication devoted to the study of Pension's works, and it's free. So if you want to read this, it, I, I recommend it. I read the whole thing. I liked it. But uh, basically, he argues that uh, the crying of Lot 49 is an encrypted meditation on JF, the JFK assassination, right? And he uses magic eye pictures as like a metaphor for what Pynchon's books are and how they function. So do you guys know what a magic eye picture is? Um, what do you mean when you say that? Apparently this was like a, like uh, it's trademarked in his article. This is like a, it's like a brand of that creates these pictures, but what it is, is it's like, it looks like kind of, they look kind of psychedelic. Like wallpaper kind of. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. 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 I think. I, go ahead. Yeah. And the idea is you put your face really close to the picture and you don't blink and you really slowly pull your head away, like really, really slowly and if you don't blink and you focus on the same point in the picture, it will start to like take another shape. Like it will almost transform in like a hallucinatory way. Like a hidden image. Exactly. And then once you, the, the and I, I'm again, my brain won't let me see him. I, I spent like. I'm really bad at them too, actually. I, so I spent like when I was reading this article, probably 15 minutes, like going like this to my computer screen (laughs) listener i'm like they're all they're seeing is my glasses but and then like slowly backing away and i would start to almost see it and then something would break my concentration but they're cool i would recommend googling them um i'm sure that it is really sweet uh if it works when i was a kid we had a book a, a book of those and i would sit there for like way too long (laughs) doing magic eye pictures and shit (laughs) could you see him boyd yeah but uh you know (laughs) at a certain point like you i don't think you're supposed to like have a book of those things like that was probably like a failed (laughs) failed attempt at merchandising because like you get headaches after a while or at least i did yeah the eye strain is kind of you know legit but uh anyway so so hollander's argument is basically that um, aside from the JFK thing, which I'll talk about briefly in a minute, but that Pynchon's books are like magic eye pictures, right? And that you have to, you know, mentally stare at them, right? Like just focus and, and struggle with them. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, and in following the, the, 
the patterns that they lay out before you, you'll see these hidden meanings kind of like concealed in plain sight, right? So I'm not going to walk through his entire argument because what he does is he basically, um, listener, if you're not familiar with Pynchon, one thing Pynchon really likes to do is come up with really ridiculous names for characters, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And sometimes they're like, they're alluding to historical figures and they're like ridiculous because of that. Other times there's like, you know, Stanley Kotex is named after like, you know, uh, fucking uh, menstrual pads, right? Like Kotex pads. So he uses like names in the book and he uses uh, like people who are referenced, like real historical figures to kind of articulate this uh, argument that Pynchon is basically pilled on the JFK assassination. Which is almost certainly the case for sure, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, like a couple things I jotted down, he mentions like uh, Richard Farina, who was Pynchon's friend in college and he was like friends with Bob Dylan. He was in that like Brooklyn uh, folk scene in the, the early 60s. RIP to a real one. Yeah, really. Um, he died in a motorcycle accident in um, 1966, which is the same year the Chronicle of 49 was published. There were a lot of motorcycle accidents happening around the same time. Yeah, well, Ho- Hollander uh, comes out and just straight up says that he thinks it was a COINTELPRO operation. <laughs> Well, that's ridiculous. The CIA would never use like, uh, you know, methods of uh, opportunity uh, in the disposal of uh, dissidents. That's come on a car crash. They couldn't make that happen. (laughs) They wouldn't be involved in the folk scene. Oh, yeah. No, they would have no way of of knowing where he's at, you know, who he's associating with anything like that's just come on. That's crackpot shit. (laughs) Yeah, it's I mean, famously, the CIA has no interest in culture. (laughs) no cia fbi there's no Mm -mm. but uh yeah so he he talks about that kind of thing and there's i guess there's an oblique reference to richard farina in the book Mm -hmm. he straight up says that other critics obfuscate pynchon's goal like pynchon the real meaning of pynchon's work i highly recommend reading this article it's good dude it's so good i haven't i haven't read this i should read it i'll send it to you guys after this no you really dude it's it's fantastic it's uh that cuttlefish actually meant he has a thread on it oh really i've heard the uh, jfk theory and I, I like i agree that it's that like the only thing that i like anytime with pension it's never just that but right it absolutely is jfk pilled among all the other things that is are going on right and that's and that's like what i think that that's that's the right way to read his books right yeah because it's it's about it's about following these breadcrumbs that he's leaving for you taking everything that he does even the shit that's like silly mm-hmm. and appreciating that it's silly like i'm not i'll be the first person to say you gotta laugh because it's funny but also not letting that distract you from what else pension might be trying to say right using the joke mm-hmm I think that I think that this article is an exemplary piece on how to do pension scholarship research, whatever you want to call it. Is just picking a rabbit hole, diving in, and seeing what you 
what comes up, right? Because like uh, there was a one part in the article that's really good where the, so the CIA is only mentioned by name once in the book, but it's in the context of this guy named Jesus who's a part of the CIA, but it's a Mexican dissident group, not, he even says, not the one you're thinking about. Yeah. But then if you think, all right, someone named Jesus working for the CIA, who's that? James Jesus Angleton, right? And then he he follows that rabbit hole. There's some references to shit. I mean, I mean, Boyd, I think you'll talk about this, but there's a lot of references to shit that happens in Italy. So, all right, James Jesus Angleton, Italy. Oh, what's that? Gladio. He even references the Unholy Trilogy, trilogy or, or sorry, Unholy Trinity book in this article, mm-hmm. right? Like, so again, he's just like, he's taking Pynchon's book as this like really fertile earth and like sticking his hands in and just like, like sifting through it and finding all of the different pebbles and gems that are in there and like, like using them as scrying stones almost. Mm. And I think that that's how you have to read Pynchon because otherwise you're going to just wind up, like I said, staring in your belly button and talking about how he, uh, he dares to restore the magic to language or whatever lame bullshit. Well, that's like when you were talking about when you started with that first article and you're mentioning that like um, that they talk about how uh, the book teaches you how to read it. And it's like from that statement, like I can see how that could be true. Like if you if you kind of like follow what Edipa is doing um, and like use that method of discovery that she kind of starts unearthing. Um, like I, I get where you're coming from if you if you want to take that angle. But then they take it in this, like you said, navel gazy direction that just ends up as a circle jerk and it gets you nowhere other than just like self-glorification. Absolutely. There's the, there's a, a sentiment that pops up across a lot of these articles. And one of them said, this is a quote from, I forget which one specifically, but it says, Pynchon's work is full of, quote, signs that point everywhere and nowhere. And that's like, even if it's not said verbatim, that is like a common thing for academics. And it's like, they're they're pointing everywhere. They're not pointing nowhere. They're pointing everywhere. <laughs> right. And like, you can like fucking go hog wild and pick the one that you're interested in and follow it. But like, as soon as you just let it be a game and divorce it of any context, divorce it of any history, it, it it's, it, I mean, you're, you're just missing out on the, the, the meat of the book. And it's the same thing when you do uh, like when you just pick one thing, like if you assign one meaning to the crying of lot 49 or any of Pynchon's books, you're, you're cutting yourself off from all of the possibilities because like one of the, you know, one of the themes of the crying of lot 49 is that ambiguity of like, well, is it real or isn't it real? Like, is this a sign or is this not a sign? Like, am I just making this up or whatever? But the problem is, is that when you start applying that method to research related to the crying of lot 49 or like, you know, any of his books, that happens to you. You will be <laughs> beset on all sides by like, okay, wait, this is this a coincidence? Like this, this name pops up, you know, five different times in the book. And I, you know, I, I followed one rabbit hole down and here I am, you know, staring face to face with this, this real life name or whatever it may be. And so right. like, you know, it's, it's a little frustrating to see people wall themselves off by saying, no, nope, this is what it is about. It's about this one thing. And like, it's interesting. What did they say? What was that line that they said? Like, he, he teaches you how to read or what, what was the line? It was uh, that the novel teaches the reader how to read it. Yes. And so like that presupposes that Pynchon 
is trying to say something, right? Exactly. But Pynchon is kind of like a mirror in that, like, you kind of see what you want to see in his work, kind of like with everything to a degree, but like maybe more so with Pynchon. And, like, the issue is that these academics don't have anything to say. So when they look at Pynchon, they think he's not saying anything. They think that it's like the magic of language and that's what they're interested in. And it's like, there's absolutely nothing else going on. But like in reality, there is so much going on. If you just care about the world just a little bit more, right? I think like, I was trying to think of like the most, like how to boil down the issues with everything I read into like one, one point. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the the best I can do is like, so Jimmy's going to talk about this later, but the I think that like in terms of action, the climax of the book is Oedipa going to her shrink after being put through the fucking ringer. And he is completely fucking crazy, holed up in his office. He's shot through the walls with a gun a couple times. He takes her hostage and he reveals that he is a former Nazi and that he's been previously you learned that he's been doing LSD experiments on housewives. And he is insanely paranoid that like psychic Israeli spies are going to come through the wall and kill him for what he did at Buchenwald back in like 1943 or whatever. Right. And it's like this long drawn out scene. I know we'll talk about it more in a bit, but I did not see one fucking academic ask all right what why is there a nazi in california in 1963 distributing lsd like wouldn't like i'm just like is that not interesting like just like a fundamental <laughs> level is that boring are you just like hmm, i wonder if there are any historical examples of that. right like how the fuck are you not like whoa huh that's weird i'm gonna look into that a little bit instead they're like well Pynchon through the lens of Leotard and Foucault, he's really getting into the post-structuralist <laughs> differentiation between the self and the other. And it's like, fucking kill yourself. Like, <laughs> seriously, you are useless. Just trash. Like, you, the, the absence of curiosity is astounding to me. Like, I've, I, it boils my fucking blood because it's right there. Like, it's right there. All you have to do is have more curiosity like not be brain dead <laughs> just don't be brain dead it's there fuck like it oh man like that's the thing right when we not to be like that but like you read in china how they sent academics to the countryside so that they could fucking <laughs> learn a single goddamn thing about the world and a lot of people pretend like that's a bad thing but what i hypothesize to you is Maybe some of these people do need to be sent to the countryside. Hmm? It's not even a question. It's not even <laughs> a fucking question, dude. Like, it's no real-life experience. And, like, no curiosity about the world. And it doesn't have to be the countryside. They could just they could just be cashiers, right? They could just be <laughs> cashiers. Something, right? Whatever the modern version is. No, because, like, when you live a normal life, like, it, just as a, like, regular human being who isn't just, like, constantly, like, 
hollowing out their own ass to make a living room like you have these experiences like you 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 meet interesting people who have fascinating stories and so then when you go and read books like the crying of lot 49 you don't just pass up the story about the about the nazi psychiatrist in california and go oh well isn't that funny like no this is uh this is very real like crazy ass things happen in the real world and you're turning it into this like bizarre fiction that oh isn't that hilarious i'm just gonna you know uh, what a funny magical thing to say like no this is real life dude like wild things happen yeah and like they do this thing where they're they're like so cloistered off from any like you guys said anything resembling like a meaningful experience with another person that they 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 don't even like write or think in terms that like anyone besides a tenured academic can understand and like going to college is just learning how to talk like an academic so that you can talk like them and then you know do what they do which is just produce shit that nobody needs like none of this stuff is relevant like like i like talking about morality totally important right like mm-hmm. i'm not opposed to like people getting together and talking about like oh this weird thing happened is it right or wrong how should i respond whatever but like they they don't talk about it in terms that are like comprehensible to a normal person again maybe i mean let me back up maybe i'm dumb right maybe i just am not smart enough to understand but to me it's like you are just in you are you are you are creating a market that you are then selling your shit to. And that market is yourself and your peers. And they're just, that's all they do, right? It's just trade their bullshit, stupid ass ideas back and forth all fucking day and pretend like they're changing the world. And again, kill yourself. It's just squatting on, it's like squatting on actual capital because a lot of colleges are just functionally hedge funds. Yeah, they're hedge funds, right? They're squatting on social capital. So they'll sit, right, with JSTOR, all these other things, and they'll just sit on certain things that everyone should have access to and then churn out bullshit on top of it, right? Yeah. So I'll wrap up. I've gone on longer than I meant to. It's fine. Go off, King. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Um, it all needs to be said. Who else is addressing this problem of people that need to be sent to camps that are writing these horrible, horrible articles? Well, and that's the thing. Like the, the reason that like I, I was like, this is like a classic example of somebody like overcompensating because like I was that guy, like I wanted to be a professor. I was like, this is, this is where it's at. And then like through both experiences I had and like matters of circumstance, I like didn't want to anymore slash couldn't. And then I'm like so fucking thankful that I, that didn't go that route because it's like, I don't like, I don't know. There's a book called the professor's house by Willa Cather. It's really good, but I've never read a more like appropriate book about how being a professor just makes you lonely and suicidal. And you just (laughs) sit in a room and look out a window write books and then eventually die alone like that that is the sum of of the life of a professor actually quick tangent um this is probably a better sum of the life of a professor i had this professor in college um i think his name was dr brower but he he was probably 85 and he was definitely 
like not all there anymore. Um, his reading list was pretty good. He taught like modern American lit, but he would tell, he told this story one time and he was like, so he's standing in front of the class. Like he's, he's tall, he's old as fuck. And he's just like, ah, I, I've been thinking today about back when I was getting my, my PhD and, uh, I, I, we would go out to, to this bar afterwards and after class and one night I went out to the bar and uh, my, my dissertation director would come with me and we're sitting there in the back of the bar and we're drinking rolling rocks. I, I'll never be able to associate rolling rocks with anything aside from the stories. Like we're drinking rolling rocks and we're talking Wait, real quick. Um, what's a rolling rock? You got to <laughs> forgive okay. me. I don't know any drinks basically. No. Yeah. So rolling rock is just a beer. It's like a, like a pretty light beer. Okay. okay. Um, they have a distinctive like green bottle and it's just a kind of beer. He's like, so we're drinking rolling rocks and, you know, we go, we get a couple deep and he turns to me and he says, I think his name was Lawrence. He's like, he says, he says to me, Lawrence, you're a good kid. You're, you're going to go far. You're going to go far here. And I said, thank you. And I went outside to smoke a cigarette. And as I was outside, I heard a gunshot ring out and he'd drawn his gun from his waistcoat and shot his head off. <laughs> it was like, and then the, that was the end of the story. And then he's like, so anyways, Hemingway. And it's like, whoa, but like, that's, that is what it is. Is you're just like telling someone they're going to be great at what you do, what you do. And then you kill yourself. Like, it's so funny. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, but anyways, sorry for the, the digression, but, uh i mean i guess what is an episode about pension without digressions oh yeah no that was that was spot on right i mean why should we stay on topic when he the man does not stay on topic so that's to it's no that's mind. true um yeah yeah we're just we're just doing his aesthetics man you know we're restoring the magic of language to podcasting <laughs> i'm gonna put that on my resume <laughs> Um, accomplishments i have restored the magic of language to podcasts and by extension america did you guys did you guys ever read the book or the novel stoner i haven't but i've heard it's good now well first of all hilarious title but like yeah <laughs> uh it's about a professor and he's sad and depressed uh because being a professor sucks it's a great novel <laughs> and it pretty much supports this thesis entirely so yeah, I I don't I mean I think for me like the most the grad student so I was in the graduate assistance union when I was in grad school and we didn't go on strike while I was there but like after I quit they went on strike like a year later and I was still almost on social media following everybody mm-hmm. not one professor in the entire university signed their letter to the administration none of the marxists that were like you know trying to tell me about how important fucking Benjamin or whatever is were willing to even sign the letter, let alone go on strike with their fucking employees. Like graduate assistants are just working for these professors. And like, I was like, yeah, that's, that's all you need to know in my opinion. Oh yeah. Well, it's not like there was any sort of like vested interest by like the CIA to like infiltrate uh, academia. And so like it, I, you're blowing my <laughs> mind here with the idea that like, 
pseudo leftists in academia would be like all talk about oh you need to read this philosopher and then when actual like when the you know the rubber hits the road that they'd be like oh well i'm not gonna risk my job like that would be crazy oh yeah <laughs> and what's wild is they have tenure like you could do anything you right. want when you have tenure i mean how many fucking professors like fuck their students yeah. and don't get fired like the entire en- environment I mean, is just ideologically compromised yeah that's, to say I nothing think, of snitching which they also do oh yeah or like i mean getting into i think you see this in like the humanities some, but a lot in the social sciences, like just straight up collaboration. Yeah. Like, it's just like, <laughs> we're just getting grants from some CIA cutout and doing. Looking at you, Chomsky. <laughs> Get his <laughs> ass. <You> old bastard. <laughs> um, Tell me to vote Democrat one more time. I dare you. <laughs> yeah. I'll flick you and you'll turn into dust. <laughs> um. All right, my my wrap up points. Uh, pension is not schizo shit, mm-hmm. and like a lot of these professors would have you believe that he's like just doing goofs and gaffs, and like that. While that is important, and like laughing is important, I love having fun. It's not only that, and also I'm not doing the like doth thou protest too much thing. It is actually not schizo shit. Um, the historical parallels are mostly obvious in the works that he's writing and ignoring them is bad and doing a disservice to you as the reader. Don't let the academics tell you otherwise. There's a reason that there's no articles about this shit because they don't want you to actually look into what he's trying to say. I know I sound like fucking like Alex Jones. Like they don't want you to look, they don't want you to know the truth folks, but like for real, they don't. Um, Another takeaway point, academics are dumb and useless. (laughs) Disregard them. And my last one, they are unintentionally or not so unintentionally asking the wrong questions. Also, anytime you see somebody refer to postmodern America instead of like late stage capital America or capitalist America disregard immediately. They're distracting you. (laughs) Postmodernism is a function of capital, right? If you say postmodern America, I'm stealing something from your house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Those are my takeaway points. I'm not going to threaten any academics by name. You literally did earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Uh, okay, well, I'm not going to threaten any more academics by name. Well, that was that was nebulous. Yeah, yeah, no more actionable threats. I'm done. <laughs> um, but I, like I said, that was that was my I that was I am Dante. I'm back from hell. <laughs> I have I've bore my testimony before you all. I will bear my scars in private. Well done, sir. Thank you. I'm going to crush a cheeseburger real fast. One, two, one, two, three, four. Against the hunt and the Turk, never once do we shirk. My daddy, my doggy, and me. Through the perilous years, like the three musketeers, we'll stick just as close as can be. Soon our subs periscope blame for Constantinople And as again we said hopeful to see Once more unto the breach There's boys on the beach 
my daddy, my doggy, and me. <laughs>